We're coming down the home stretch on our All the Feels series. If this is your first week here at Linwood, which I met several people and I see several that I didn't meet that look like new faces, um, it's been exciting. One of my prayers as I walk through the sanctuary each week is that, that every Sunday at Linwood would be somebody's first Sunday at Linwood. And we've been seeing that happen a lot lately, that new people are coming, and we want uh, them to feel very, very welcome. If you're joining us sort of midstream, uh, we've been doing a series on human emotion rooted in the book of Psalms, and you can catch up on our website if you go to uh, linwoodchurch.org and the media page. You can listen to the, to the other messages, or you can share them with your friends, those types of things. Uh, but we've been sort of riding a roller coaster the last few weeks. If you've been here uh, consistently, you know that that's kind of how emotions work. It's not like you pick one for the day, and that's your emotion all day long. Uh, they tend to, to kind of go up and down, and they can move very quickly. And so the last five weeks, we've looked at things like fear and love and gratitude, sorrow and joy. We've been up, we've been down, we've been everywhere in between. And uh, today we continue that. We're, we're going to be looking at avoiding Anger, avoiding anger. Anger being one of the five core emotions or emotional responses to the circumstances around it. That's essentially what emotions are as a response uh, to what's happening around us. If you were here back when we got this whole thing started, I shared a clip from a really phenomenal movie on understanding emotions and how emotions interact uh, from, from the movie Inside Out. And so we've got, uh, I'm going to kind of orient you. If you haven't seen the movie, the clip won't make as much sense. But there are five characters kind of inside the head of each person in the movie, at least in each of the main characters. And so you have disgust, fear, joy, anger, and sadness. And uh, in this clip, we're quite a ways into the movie. They've moved from uh, Minnesota to San Francisco, and the little girl who's the main character um, is struggling with that transition, as you might imagine. And uh, to make matters worse, uh, through the course of the film, joy and sadness uh, have left headquarters. They're sort of the brain and, and the seat of emotions. Joy and sadness are gone. So all that's left is disgust, fear, and anger in Joy's mind. But her parents have all five. So that kind of helps set this up a little bit. I want you to watch this. Uh, it gives us a really good uh, insight into anger and how anger works. And uh, we'll, we'll roll the clip and then we'll continue from it's there. subtle, so she doesn't notice. So, how was the first day of school? She's probing us. I'm done. You pretend to be Joy. What? Okay. Um, hmm. It was fine, I guess. I don't know. Oh, very smooth. That was just like Joy. Something is definitely going on. She's never acted like this before. What should we do? We're going to find out what's happening, but we'll need support. Signal the husband. Ahem. With a nice pass oh, over the reeds, oh, comes oh, across that right. Ahem. Uh-oh, she's looking at us. Uh, what did she say? What? Oh, oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? <sighs> He's making that stupid face again. I could strangle him right now. Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school? Oh, you be kidding me. For this, we gave up that Brazilian helicopter pilot? Boo, I'll be joy. School was great, all right? Riley, is everything okay? Oh. <sighs> Sir, she just rolled her eyes at us. What is her deal? All right, make a show of force. I don't want to have to put the foot down. No, not the foot. Riley, I do not like this new attitude. Oh, I'll show you attitude. Over no, there. no, no, no. Stay happy. What 
is your problem? Just leave me alone. Sir, reporting high levels of sass. Take it to DEFCON 2. You heard that, gentlemen? DEFCON 2. Listen, young lady, I don't know where this disrespectful attitude came from. You want a piece of this, Pops? Come and get it! Yeah, well, well... Here it comes. Prepare the foot. Keys to safety position. Ready to launch on your command, sir. That's it. Go to your room. Now. The foot is down. The foot is down. Good job, gentlemen. That could have been a disaster. Well, that was disaster. <laughs> all right, so we laugh, and it's, it's, it's amusing, but we've all been in those situations, and we've all had these various emotions that seem to be sort of driving... Uh, things forward. And one of the reasons we're talking about anger today, and we can't just skip over this necessarily, is that we live in a culture that is increasingly driven by anger. It's increasingly fueled by anger. In fact, uh, I'd like to look up biblical definitions in the root words and Greek words, but I also often will, will plug these words into the Google machine and see what the Google machine has to say about them. And one of the things that I found when I did that, you can't necessarily read this and you don't necessarily need to, but let me just explain what this chart is showing. It's showing the use of the word anger in the English language. Google can do this somehow. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. From, 19, or from 1800 to just past 2000. And this caught my attention because you can see that it bottomed out about 1940. That's when it hit the bottom. And it was about 0.002% of the English language was the word anger. And in the time, the 60 years plus since 1940, it has more than doubled to where it is today. And so the word anger is being used more often. It's more a part of our conversation. It's more a part of of journalism. It's more a part of literature. It's more a part of our spoken interactions with each other. Anger is on the rise. And uh, unfortunately, many people have realized that there are ways to profit from anger. There are ways to manipulate with anger. Our political system is good at getting us riled up and angry about various things. And, and so the result is that we live in a culture that is increasingly fueled by anger. In fact, there are people here in this church that have told me verbatim, you should be more angry when you preach. We need you to get a little more fired up, a little more angry. And it's interesting because they said the same thing when I went to West Virginia, and it made me really mad. Like it, That made me angry. It hasn't made me angry here. I'm not too worried about it. Um, you know... It used to make me really angry, but it, it, it doesn't anymore. I kind of got real secure in, in who God called me to be and how he called me to preach and the convictions that he's laid on my heart, and, and that's okay. I understand people have stylistic preferences, and I'm not saying that they're good or bad or right or wrong. Um, I just find it interesting when that feedback comes to me. But the reality is nothing can really make us angry. I said that that used to make me angry, but the reality is I chose to be angry about that. Nothing can really make us angry. And to illustrate that, uh, this used to happen a lot when I was uh, in sales. I shouldn't say it happened a lot. Occasionally, my wife and I would get into a agree- disagreement. That, that didn't happen a lot. But often, while we were in the midst of that disagreement, and I was getting angry, the phone would ring. And I would say, oh, New York Life, Mark Sundstrom. And suddenly, I was not angry anymore. And that would make her very angry, right? Or you get my point. 
But I could turn it off just like that if the phone was ringing and a commission might have been on the other end of the line. And that's the case with anger. The things that get us all fired up, we can turn them off just like that if something else comes in our way. And I don't think I'm the only person that's like that. I think that's something that we all experience and that anger sometimes sparks and we do get fired up, but we don't realize that it's a choice that we're making. We don't realize that we could stop being angry, that we could choose a different approach. And one of the reasons that we don't realize that is this image that I want you to picture in your mind of an elephant and a rider, an elephant and a rider. And I should have used this a lot sooner because this is just a powerful, powerful image in our mind. But the elephant is your emotions. It's the emotional mind. It's the emotional reaction. It's the emotional response. The rider is your rational mind. The rider is wisdom. The rider is a thoughtful approach or a thoughtful response. And so if you've ever ridden an elephant, which most of you probably have not, but the rider is a lot smaller than the elephant. And the rational mind is typically a lot smaller than the emotional response that we have to things. And yet, if we can, if we can get control of those things, if we can harness them, if we can bring them under, the, if we can bring the elephant under the submission of the rider and send it where we want it to go, we can accomplish a lot more with a lot less collateral damage. And so when we think about anger, uh, one of the best definitions that I have heard of anger, um, where you know typically it has to do with annoyance, it has to do with irritation, it has to do with maybe even aggression or, or antagonism uh, as, as part of that response. But Dallas Willard, who I'm going to lean heavily on him because I think some of his thoughts on this subject from his book, The Divine Conspiracy, are some of the best that I've heard. Um, so I'll quote him a couple of times. But he says, anger is a feeling that impels us toward interfering with and possibly even harming those who have thwarted our will and interfered with our life. Anger is a feeling, it's an emotion that impels us or pushes us forward toward interfering with and possibly even harming those who have thwarted our own will and interfered with our life. See, we don't like it when our will gets thwarted. We don't like it when our life gets interfered with. Anger has to do with the ego. It has to do with our ego and our sense of, of stability and well-being and those types of things. So it becomes a response when something thwarts our will. We respond to that often with anger if we're not careful. Now, it starts as frustration. It starts as frustration. Anger kind of grows out of frustration. Frustration takes place when something happens that we didn't expect or, worse yet, an expectation isn't met. And to illustrate this real simply, if you came out of our parking lot and decided to get on 57th Street and go in either direction and go for several miles without hitting a single traffic light, like not a single red light, only greens, if that was your expectation, then as soon as you hit a traffic light, a red light, you're going to be a little irritated, aren't you? And when you hit a second one and a third one, if your expectation was, I'm going to drive for miles without a single red light, you're going to get frustrated, and then you're going to be perturbed, and then you're probably going to be angry. But if we modify our expectations and we say, you know, traffic lights are kind of a, a thing around here and they're on a random cycle, even when it doesn't feel random, even when it feels like they have, oh, Mark's coming, let's go red here, let's go red there, let's go red there, let's go red there, insert a slow person, and you know how it is. The difference would be if I say, okay, I'm going to go across town and I'm going to hit some traffic lights and they're going to take longer than I expect. 
And I'm not going to be frustrated, and I'm not going to be angry, because I've managed the expectation. Now, you can take this too far and become extremely pessimistic and say, the world's going to be terrible, and you're going to be all Eeyore, and, and go through life, well, at least I wasn't disappointed, at least I wasn't frustrated. I'm not saying that, but maybe balance here a little bit. The other thing that impacts our frustration level is, is what we put in our need category and what we put in our want category. You see, uh, Paul David Tripp has said this so perfectly. He said, you put too many things in your need category, and you'll end up frustrated with life, hurt by others, and doubting the goodness of God. If everything that you want gets put into your need category and doesn't come to pass, but you think you need it, then you're going to be very frustrated. You're going to be very hurt by people, and you're going to doubt the goodness of God, and you might become a very angry person. Over time, that frustration accumulates, and if we're not careful, uh, the anger can grow into a contempt if we're not careful, if we allow it to do so. Where, whereas frustration is initially spontaneous, uh, we either wave that off or we completely indulge it, and we feed it, and it grows, and the anger becomes contempt towards a person, towards people, towards a group, towards life itself, and uh, we, when we indulge anger... We are on a very slippery slope. In fact, Dallas Willard points out that indulged anger always has in it an element of self-righteousness and vanity. If you find a person who has embraced anger, you find a person with a wounded ego. The ego gets wounded, the ego becomes bitter, the ego becomes contemptuous to the world around it, and anger is embraced. And it's interesting, when you read the Sermon on the Mount... It starts with the Beatitudes, blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they. It moves into salt and light. And then the first of the, the things of the law that Jesus dials in on in Matthew 5, verse 21 through 24, is anger. It's the first one he chose to focus on. It's the first thing that he chose to speak about in this idea of fulfilling the law. And so you know the pattern, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, is you heard that it was said, but I say to you, and he does that several different things. He talks about things like adultery and divorce and the eye for an eye and taking oaths and love for your enemy and giving to the needy. And he moves on through this thing. But he starts with anger. And I think that was intentional. I think that was purposeful. I think that if we could get anger off our plates and out of our lives, we would be 90% of the way there with all the others. And so here's what Jesus had to say about anger in Matthew chapter 5. He said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. You're like, okay, so as long as I don't kill them, I'm all right. I can get angry, I can hurt them, I can harm them, I can maim them, but if I don't kill them, I'm okay. Well, no, because there's verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. What did he say? You say, if I'm angry... I'm subject to judgment. I put it in red just to remind you these are Jesus' words. These are the red letters of the gospel. And he's saying anybody who is angry with his brother. Now, we want to make it say angry without cause. That's not what it says. It says if you are angry with your brother, you're subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to his brother Raka, which you probably haven't said Raka to anybody recently, but that was a, an insult or a, a slanderous comment that would be said uh, back in those days in Aramaic, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger 
of the fire of hell. You only have to read Proverbs through once to find out that fool was the very bottom rung of society. So where we might say, you know, call somebody a fool, almost like a clown or a joker or something like that, in this culture, fool was the worst put down that you could put somebody, the, the worst label that you could put onto somebody. So he's warning against this very, very strongly. In fact, he applies it in such a way, he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. He's taken this very, very seriously. And it makes me wonder, can you, can you even imagine a world without anger? Can you even imagine a world where there's no anger whatsoever? What would they put on TV? There was no anger. How much of TV is somebody yelling at somebody or somebody yelling about somebody or somebody being angry about something or someone? And if we took this, this one passage seriously, if we took it as seriously as Jesus has taken it, and we realize if somebody has got something against me, it doesn't say if you have something against your brother. It says if your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there at the altar. Go and be reconciled. It doesn't say go and pray that God will somehow magically reconcile your relationship. It says go to the person. Apologize. Be reconciled. Make it right. As far as it is upon you, live at peace with every person. Is what Paul said in Romans 12. As far as it depends upon you, do your part. Be reconciled. Then return. Then return. James wrote about this too in James 1, 19 and 20. You don't have to look these up necessarily. We'll have them on the screen. We'll move through these uh, relatively quickly. But James uh, says this famous passage in 19 and 20. He says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. That should be reason enough for us to avoid anger as much as possible because he says very clearly, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Our anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires. What does? Going and being reconciled. That produces the righteous life that God desires. And Paul had quite a bit to say about anger as well. We'll look at one of those in just a minute. But I want to ask you, what do our psalms say? Remember, we're rooted in the book of Psalms. We're rooted in this, this collection of songs and hymns and poetry of man expressing his heart to God as, as, as man pours out his emotions to, to God and, and talks about the emotional responses that we have to things. Uh, we find these in the book of, of Psalms, and it's very interesting. We don't, we don't see a lot of examples of of psalmists saying, I'm angry about this, or I am frustrated about this, or I am, I am ticked off about this. We can infer it quite a bit, but more than anything in regards to anger in the book of Psalms is, is God's anger. We hear a lot more about God's anger in the book of Psalms than we do about man's anger, and I wonder why that is. There's, there's references to fearing God's anger. There's references for to begging for mercy from God's anger. And there are a few places where God's anger is invoked upon the psalmist's enemies. And that's probably as close as we get to recognizing that there's anger taking place here. You know, when you see sorrow, when you see love, when you see joy, all of those are, are, are crystal clear in the psalms. Anger kind of has to be inferred. But interestingly enough, as, as the phrase that is associated with God the most through the psalms in regards to anger 
is the phrase that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. We see that one over and over. We see it from a variety of different psalmists. We see it in a variety of different psalms, this notion that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. And so that should be the backdrop of our own lives because the psalmists seldom, if ever, express their own anger directly. They do express hatred towards those who hate God, and they do invoke God's anger. And I would say we probably do this too. When we get on the opposition of somebody else, we want to invoke God's anger upon our opponent. And uh, we see that throughout Psalms. But there are two Psalms in particular that I want to look at today that speak directly to anger and directly to our idea of avoiding anger and living lives that move away from anger rather than moving towards anger. The first is Psalm 37, verses 8 through 11. You can pick this up in, uh, in one of the blue hardcover Bibles in the seats there in front of you. It's on page 874 there. And interestingly enough, Psalm 37 is one that I've studied many times. Uh, it's the psalm uh, that talks about uh, Trusting in the Lord and doing good, dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in Him and He will make your righteousness shine like the noonday. That's the first six or seven verses. And so what we're going to be studying in verses 8 through 11 stand in contrast uh, to those exhortations, but they are right in line with them as we will see. So verse 8, we're told to refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. So in this section, it starts with an exhortation to refrain from anger. To refrain from means to avoid, to cease all anger, to relax your anger. These are all kind of caught up in that word that we translate as, as refrain and, and essentially to let go. Just stop it, essentially. He's saying, stop it. Stop the anger. Refrain from it. Let go of it. Back away from it. Relax. Avoid it, if at all possible, and cease it when you get caught up in it. And if that wasn't clear enough, the next phrase is to turn from wrath. To turn means to forsake or to leave behind. So if Anger and wrath are right in front of me. I'm going to turn. This is the biblical concept of repentance. We repent from our anger. We turn from it towards something else, towards the opposite of anger, which would be love and compassion and and those types of things. And we leave behind that wrath. We leave behind that rage. And we move in an opposite direction. Now, this next phrase, do not fret, for it only leads to evil. Uh, Fret, if you look up the Hebrew word there for fret, it doesn't mean fret. I don't know why they translate it the way that they do, because if you look it up, it's the Hebrew word kara, which sounds a lot more like to burn with anger, which is what it means. The, the word there, it says, do not burn with anger, rather than do not fret. Fret has to do with anxiety, it has to do with kind of wringing your hands and being worried. And this word kara, 95% of the time that it appears in the Old Testament, it's translated as some form of do not burn with or do not be angry, do not be consumed with anger. Do not be kindled towards anger. And the reason is so good. It should be enough for us. Because it only leads to evil. It only leads to evil. And I would venture a guess that we will be happier 
and live better and more productive and more fruitful lives if we will avoid the things that only lead to evil. Would you agree? Can we, can we find some common ground there? That this is enough of a reason. The scripture tells us to avoid it, to turn away from it, to be done with it, to not go there because it only leads to evil. But he continues on that idea of evil with some warnings, I think, in verses 9 and 10. In case that's not enough, he says the evil are going to be cut off. The evil will be cut off. Those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. In verse 10, a little while, the wicked will be no more. So there is a, there is a conclusion to this world that is on its way. And if you've read the story, you know that everything was perfect before the fall. And you also know that one day everything will be perfect again. We're in between those two days. And the world does not function as it was intended to function. And things happen to us that were never what was the intention. The intention was paradise forever. But because of human free will, they ate the apple, they sinned against God, sin entered the heart of man, it has been translated down through the generations and seems to be growing, but it will not always grow. There will come a point in time when evil is done, when goodness comes, and it is only good. But the evil will be cut off. The wicked will be cut off. And that should be an added warning to us. Verses 9 and 11 promise us, those who hope in the Lord, they will inherit the land. The meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. So we don't want to do something that only leads to evil. We want to avoid anger. Anger only leads to evil. Being kindled and burning with anger only leads to evil. We want to avoid that. We want to hope in the Lord. We want to be meek. You know what meekness means. We talk about this a lot because everybody thinks meek means weak. Meek does not mean weak. Meek means humble. Meek means gentle. Meek means strength that is under control. Meek means that the elephant is harnessed and guided by the rider. That wisdom is leading that thing around. Not just the elephant dragging the rider through the world, guardrail to guardrail, knocking things about, destroying things, leaving a path of destruction, which is what anger, unchecked, will result in. And so this leads us to our bottom line, the strong exhortation to refrain from anger, to turn from wrath, to not fret, to not burn with anger because it only leads to evil. It leads us to our bottom line. And the bottom line today is that there is nothing we can do with anger that we cannot do better without. There is nothing that we can do or accomplish or bring about with anger that we cannot do or accomplish or bring about better without anger. It might take longer. It might be messier. We might have to turn the other cheek a time or two. But there is nothing that we can accomplish with anger that we cannot accomplish better without it. And I want to also look at Psalm 4.4 because it reinforces this idea. And the reason that we choose to avoid anger and the reason that we say there's nothing we can do with anger that we cannot do better without it is the reality that anger almost always brings about more anger. When you're angry at me, my emotional response to your anger is more anger. And when I'm angry at you, your natural emotional response is more anger. And so that's why Psalm 4.4, David says, In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Instead, when you're on your beds, don't be burning and kindled with anger, but search your hearts and be silent. 
In your anger, do not sin. Now, to sin means to miss the mark. To sin means to to transgress or to do the wrong thing. And he's saying, do not sin in your anger. It's like there's a recognition that anger is a natural emotional response to the circumstances of life. And, And perhaps even there's a way to be angry and not sin. If he can say, be angry or in your anger, do not sin. It is possible, I believe. But I would also point to Scripture in the New Testament where Paul says, flee from sin, flee from sexual immorality, flee from idolatry, flee from these things. We have a tendency to say, okay, where's the line? How close can I get to the line without sinning? Okay, I think I'm right there. I'm right on the edge. And Paul's saying, no, don't play that game. Don't play that game with anger. Don't play that game with sexual immorality. Don't play that game with idolatry. Don't play that game with anything else. If there's the line, get away from it. So that you can't accidentally step over into it. If you know where the line is, if you know that anger is going to lead to evil and it's going to bring about more anger, don't get close to it. Get away from it. Avoid it. Avoid it if at all possible. So I think that they're saying spontaneous anger, spontaneous emotional reactions are unavoidable. But in your anger, in that emotional reaction that happens like this, do not sin. Do not indulge it. Do not get as close to it as you can or just walk over it and say, oh, well, shoot, it's behind me now. I might as well just wreak a little havoc and I'll come back and I'll ask for repentance and I'll, I'll ask for forgiveness a little bit later. He's saying, no, stay away from it. Get away from it. Don't willfully indulge your anger. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, flee from, flee from and abstain from every evil practice. Flee from every evil practice. Don't see how close you can get. Get away from it. The other thing that we can do that's really helpful here is learn to manage those expectations, like the traffic lights. Manage the expectation. If the same, if you fall in the same pit every day, find a different way to work. Or expect, you know what, this is the only way from A to B. I've got to go through here. It's going to be tough, but I'm going to manage my expectations. I'm going to realize that this is going to happen. I don't have to get ticked off and upset about the same thing every single day. I have a choice. I don't have to indulge that anger. I can avoid that anger. I can recognize that it's likely. Now, how many of you are thinking, well, what about righteous indignation, Pastor Mark? What about, what about, Jesus was angry. He threw him out of the temple. Remember that? He made a whip of cords. He really chewed out the Pharisees a time or two. What about that? Well, that's a good question. And as a recovering Pharisee, I can tell you I've asked that question myself a couple of times. And there's a quote that I'm going to share from Dallas Willard that kind of convicted me on this. He says, anger and condemnation, like vengeance, are safely left to God. We must beware of believing that it is okay for us to condemn as long as we are condemning the right things. I can trust Jesus to go into the temple and drive out those who are profiting from religion, but I cannot trust myself to do it. And I think he's right. If you read the Gospels, you'll find Jesus tells us over and over and over to love each other. He doesn't ever once tell us to try to figure out who to be angry at and be angry at them. He tells us to love them. We can leave the anger, we can leave the contempt, we can leave the condemnation, in God's hands. We don't have to take those for him. There's no vacancy in the Trinity. Okay? They've got it taken care of. We've been instructed, and our instructions are to love, not to figure out who to be mad at. And if you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus was most angry with the self-righteous religious people. Read in Matthew when he rails against the Pharisees and calls them whitewashed tombs and 
and goes on and on. That's about the only time that he really gets amped up is that and when people were profiting from religion in the temple and they were making it hard for people to come to God and they were making it a monetary uh, thing that they were profiting from. Don't be self-righteous. Don't profit from God. Don't indulge anger. Here's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So he takes Psalm 4.4. He quotes the first phrase verbatim. In your anger, do not sin. Then he interprets the next two phrases from Psalm 4.4, which talk about when you're on your bed, be quiet, reflect, contemplate. And he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let your anger be there in the morning. Don't indulge it. Don't feed it. Brush it away. Forgive. Seek forgiveness. Be reconciled. Do those things in response to your anger. Anger can be a cue that something is amiss. Something needs to be addressed. But it's not meant, and we should not use it, as a seed to incite and increase our own anger and to unleash our anger on other people. Because, verse 27, do not give the devil a foothold. What is indulged anger? What is anger that, that builds through the day that we go to bed with and wake up with? It's a foothold. It's a foothold for the enemy. It's a foothold for Satan. And we're to avoid giving Satan footholds in our lives. And then he continues the theme there. He talks about filthy language. He talks about um, abusing one another and those types of things there through the end of, of chapter in Ephesians, get rid of all bitterness, anger, and rage, brawling, and slander, among, along with every form of malice. That's verse 31. So there's a, a direct exhortation to get rid of it. Avoid it. Don't indulge it. Don't let it take root. Deal with it. Deal with it in the moment. Brush it aside. Ask God, what is the way forward? Take control of the elephant. Don't just let it carry you through. Because there is nothing that we can accomplish with anger. There's nothing we can do with anger that we cannot do better without it. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to, to imagine a world free of your anger. It might be a little idealistic for us here at Linwood Wesleyan Church on June 9th, 2016 to, to eradicate all anger from the whole world, but you can eradicate anger from your own life. And you can work towards living an anger-free life. You can work towards avoiding anger, not indulging anger, recognizing it when it comes up, but not allowing it to grow in your life. So as we respond today, as we respond, I want to encourage you to make that your response. Some of you might even be angry at me right now for talking about this and for uh, diving so deep in it and casting a vision that that doesn't include anger, but I want to encourage you to try to move towards an anger-free existence, to move before, towards avoiding anger. Maybe you want to come to the altar today, and maybe you want to leave your anger here. Or maybe you want somebody to pray for you. You can go to the outside altars, and, and somebody will come put a hand on your shoulder and just pray. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with anger. You can come forward for any reason. You can come forward to intercede for somebody. Maybe you had an angry person in your life growing up and, and that you still hear their voice, you still hear them 
responding to you in anger. You can leave that at the altar too. But however you choose to respond, as I always say, I hope our response is one of faith. Not that digs our heels into our way of life, but takes the challenge to accept God's way of life, God's vision for our lives. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Even when it challenges us, even when it convicts us, we thank you for the opportunity to respond in faith to your word. We thank you for the good news, Lord. The good news that that you loved us so much that us being separated from you for eternity is not acceptable. And you came and you lived a perfect, sinless life. You died a horrifying death on a cross. You took our place, took the punishment we deserved. And from that cross, rather than anger at the insane injustice that was taking place, you said, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. May we be a people who go and do likewise. And if there's one here today that has never responded in faith to the gospel, never responded in faith to the good news, never responded in faith to the gift that is available to become a child of God, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move upon their hearts to reach out and take that gift in new life in Christ. May we be a people, O God, who avoid anger, who are known for our love, who people see your love when they look at us. In Jesus' name.